You're listening to Fueling the Future of Transport, hosted by Tammy Klein, the founder and CEO of Transport Energy Strategies. We'll talk all about the fuels and energy it takes to keep the world moving forward. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show today. I am so pleased and happy to have my friend, John Eichberger, the executive director of the Fuels Institute, on the show today to talk about the full range of what's going out there in global transport energy. Like me, I mean, there's really not a lot of us out there that really are um, sort of cross functional or or cross issue um, focused and the Fuels Institute and John in particular have worked just like me on the full range of issues out there. Everything from low carbon fuels to biofuels to electrification. We've worked a lot together um, on electrification um, over the last few years, hydrogen, diesel, uh, you name it. So we're here to talk about that, uh, all of that today. John, welcome to the program. Great hey, to Tim, have you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Well, it's good to flip the tables. I've been on your uh, podcast and I thought it was about darn time that you come on mine and talk about what you all are doing uh, at the Fuels Institute. Um, so before we really dive in here, can you talk to us especially for the listeners who really aren't familiar about the Fuels Institute uh, and what it does and and what you're working on these days. Yeah, so the Fuels Institute is a nonprofit and most importantly, non-advocacy organization. Um, We pull together a diverse perspective. Our board is 60 people big right now, and it's growing. Uh, You're on our board, fantastic perspective. But you you look at the Fuels Institute, a lot of people think fuels means liquid. I get that, but we define fuels as, as energy. If energy powers uh, surface transportation, then it's something we're looking at. I mean, our board spans from major oil companies to retailers to Electrify America to Hyzon, uh, uh, fuel cell truck manufacturer, you name it. We've got a whole swath of perspectives, and I think it's important. And what we try to do is take a look at what are the key issues facing the transportation energy market right now, really focused on how are we going to reduce carbon from that market? And then we figure out, okay, let's start doing some research fact-based objective research to figure out what are some strategies that decision makers should be considering to achieve our decarbonization objectives. And uh, it's been fascinating. I mean, there's so much going on right now. It's really a fun time to be part of this. Yeah, it sure is. I mean, it's just the whole, the full range of issues and just the complexities and decarbonization and dealing with climate change and the energy transition. And it's just, it's so um, unique, you know, this time that we're in. I remember when I first uh, met you back in 1999. No, I had hair back then. (laughs) Um, I had no grays back then. Um, And And we, we met everybody. When she said we were in, we were like in junior high when we met. So let's put this in perspective. I was, I was 12. Um, (laughs) Which means I was 11. Exactly. Exactly. Um, But when I first met you um, in 1998, 1999, we worked on gasoline. We worked on um, gasoline quality issues and we worked on MTBE. And now, you know, who would have thought that here we are, you know, all, all these years later with this sort of this, you know, complex, you know, ever-changing world with, with, with all of these issues that are, you know, popping up like popcorn. 
Yeah, you know, back then we thought the world was complicated. And we're trying to Oh my God. We're trying to get rid of MTBE. We're trying to transition to something else. We had the biofuel debates, we had the cafe standard debates, all these, all these issues. And we thought, man, this is really complicated. Now we look back and just laugh. Yeah, I know. It's like <laughs> that was easy. Back you ain't exactly. You ain't seen nothing yet. Yeah. Right. I remember those times so fondly. I actually feel it. I kind of feel like September 11th was a, was a turning point. But that's a that's another story. It was like the world was so great, and we had the Spice Girls, and we and we had sulfur reduction. And we made different our defi- We made different our definition of what constitutes great. <laughs> that's true. Yes. Yeah. I don't know where the Spice Girls thing. but now I'm now I'm stuck with that song in in my head so anyway but um so you know the one thing that we've worked on very closely together um the fuels institute has uh, an electric vehicle council I'm chairing that council I'm working with you and all the members of the council very closely over the last two or three years we've, we've worked a lot on um EV infrastructure and and charging infrastructure so you know what is it, you know, what's the, what's the biggest takeaway um, from you, you know, that you have um, working on the space a lot more intensely um, over the last few years? Like what's working? What's, what's not working? You know, how do you see, you know, electric vehicle market, you know, evolving in the next, you know, 10, 15 years? So I think there's two ways to look at them. You look at the, the vehicles themselves and what's going to happen at the expansion of the market. And I think the range of opinion is so broad. Um, I just saw a piece come out. I think you may have actually sent it to me. Um, Boston <laughs> Consulting Group is saying 59% of all vehicles sold globally in 2035 will be electric. I have a really hard time believing me that. Too. The me EU, too. you know, we're recording this in June. The EU just passed legislation to ban the sale of combustion engine vehicles in 2035. I have a hard time believing that's going to stick. We've got forecasts of 60% of vehicles in the U.S. will be electric new cars sold by 2040. I have a hard time believing that. That being said, um, we are on a much faster evolutionary track than we were a year ago. Um, And I think we have an opportunity here to really make a major transition to greater reliance on electrification in the next five to 10 years. But there's a lot of headwinds. We've got chip shortages. We've got lithium mining uh, challenges. We have all these production challenges. We've got prices for EVs were raised by many manufacturers this year. So cost parity with ICE vehicles, probably not going to be realized in 2025 as we previously thought. But we're getting more models to market which gives consumers more options. And the capabilities of the vehicles are awesome. You drive an EV, it's a fantastic ride. Mm-hmm. Great technology, wonderful vehicles. Um, but I think a lot of the forecast projections, pledges we've seen are really predicated on the assumption of a perfect market. Yeah. And there's no such thing as a perfect market. Yeah. <clears throat> so I think we're going to be kind of a roller coaster for a while. And that's going to put, my, my concern is it's going to put your EV passion advocates thinking that they're battling other stakeholders. And it's not necessarily a conflict. It's the market is very new. And anytime a market's growing, it's going to be rocky. And it's going to have ups and downs, stops and starts. You're going to have companies come in and just be gangbusters out of the block and then go bankrupt a year and a half later. That's going to continue to happen. So on the EV space, I think we're going to see growth. Europe much faster Asia much faster. The U.S. is going to be a laggard. 
Um, we have a study coming out through the EV Council um, looking at infrastructure, but within that is a forecast of maybe 6% of vehicles on the road by 2030 would be electric. Yeah. But again, I still think that's kind of an ambitious target. On the infrastructure front, I, you know, that's where we've been focusing most of our time at EBC. So the electric vehicle accounts we set up was to help answer questions about infrastructure. And from the Fuels Institute perspective, we don't care if you sell electric vehicles tomorrow or not. We don't care if you install chargers tomorrow or not. We, it's not our place to say what should happen or should not happen. What we're trying to do is provide resources to help people make decisions that if they choose to go that rate, that, that direction, they can effectively and profitably. The biggest problem we have is a profitability. The growth of chargers today are being led by companies that they're looking at the long term. They're right. looking at how we're going to capitalize on this financially in the future. We're going to take a financial hit now, install it, build up the nascent infrastructure, and then hopefully we'll be the, the dominant player in the market going forward. For your individual company that may be interested in putting a charger out, man, it's tough to make it financially viable. There's money coming from the feds to help with capital investment. That's great. There's money coming from the states, localities, utilities, all that stuff. But once you start getting to operations and the papers you've put together for us clearly articulate this, yeah. the operating cost of a charging station, especially a DC fast charging station, is very, very challenging to make it economical. And I really think the root of that is we are now integrating transportation and daily customer transaction level engagement with a utility regulatory yeah. system that was not designed for that. Yes, so, exactly. So, yeah, the Including the regulations that govern the utilities that now, you know, the, the chargers are, are subject to. And I think that's the, for me, the takeaway is, oh my gosh, we have this monolithic regulatory infrastructure that is not going to, you know, I question whether 50 state PUCs will be able to successfully keep up with the need, um, you know, for the, the expansion of charging. Like, how does, you know, how does that work or does yeah. it? I, I don't, right now, I don't think it does. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of the problem. So you're seeing a lot of political battles between the convenience fuel retailing industry and the utilities. Be, but the bottom line is the structure within which the utilities have to operate is not conducive to an EV charging market retail transaction basis. And so we need to figure out a way to evolve that to reflect current market uh, conditions and the direction we're going, if it's going to be a, a viable business investment. <clears throat> now, you could socialize it, make it a government structure. I don't think that's the best path forward. Yeah. Um, but we need to really get serious about evolving the utility regulatory structure to make it work with site hosts and customers. Otherwise, it's going to be a very slow trajectory to get that, that infrastructure built out the way we need it to be. Yeah, and even utilities are saying are beginning to say this. I mean, it's like it's no, it's it's not been apparent in maybe our world, but it's like super apparent in their world. So it's uh yeah, 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 yeah. You and I've been in the liquid fuels industry for for we'll say decades. Yes. We'll say that <laughs> loosely, loosely say that. We'll see. Um, we'll say that and then sigh very heavily. Right, exactly. And then, <laughs> and then, then call five o'clock. Um, yeah, exactly. But, you know, it's that market is transparent. There's understanding. The refiners know how to get product to market. They know the relationship. The retailers don't always like the refiner partner, but they understand and they work with them. We okay. don't have that relationship in the utility world. We don't have a yeah, anyway. 
yet. And we will mm-hmm. get there, but yeah. we need to evolve to a transparent competitive market. Right now, consumers can shop for the best price of gasoline, which right now doesn't exist, but they can shop for the best price of gasoline at 45 miles an hour without slowing down. Mm-hmm. How are they going to make economic decisions for their budget on public charging infrastructure when we have so many different jurisdictions with different rate setting processes? Right, right. We got to streamline it somehow. Yeah, yeah. So you talked about, you just mentioned uh, what's been happening in the EU with respect to the de facto ban on um, internal combustion engine vehicles. You know, we've got California that's looking at, you know, win, lose, or draw following the, the EU. You have states that are looking at following, probably following California into doing that. Um, you know, what's the future um, for the ISEF here in the, in the U.S.? Uh, how do you see the politics, you know, evolving? So as a recovering lobbyist, um, <laughs> I always say that because that poison never gets out of your system and you get pulled back in too quickly. Um, my concern with the bands like this, they're very political. Yeah. I don't believe they're rooted in sound science and what's feasible. I don't think they're rooted in what's in the best interest of the consumer. Yeah. And I think Agreed. we've seen this posturing. We want to be protect the climate. And that's fine. I, I'm fully supportive of uh, protecting the environment, protecting the climate. But we have to protect consumers, too. And I think we've lost sight of that. We hear so often we need to reduce carbon at all costs. That's the most ridiculous statement I've ever heard. Because yeah. if you increase cost to consumers to a point where they can't afford it, they will reject your policy and you will fail. We have to balance the needs of consumers with the needs of the environment. And quite frankly, I would say we need to give an edge to the needs of the consumers. People have to come first. Yeah. And when we get into these all or nothing scenarios and all or nothing proposals and initiatives, we're not putting the people first. We're putting an ideology first, and mm-hmm. I really think it's dangerous. So my gut is a lot of posturing, a lot of announcements, a lot of planning that will drive some technology innovation, that will drive some uh, acceleration and market development. But ultimately, we need to have off ramps. We need to have relief valves. We need to have protections within these policies to benefit the, the people. And if we're going down a path where by 2035 you're only allowed to buy an internal, you're only allowed to buy a zero emission vehicle, no internal combustion engine vehicles. What if they're not available, or what if the cost is so out of the reach for the everyday consumer? We got to have some sort of protection for that. And so, what if everybody buys a car in in 2034, an internal combustion engine in 2034, and then just holds it for 20 years? You're looking at someone who's probably going to do that. I mean, I love, I love EVs and I, I have a plug-in hybrid and I will probably get a full electric vehicle at some point, but it's not going to be my daily driver. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my travel needs are different. And I don't really believe that the electric vehicle is going to suit all of my needs. And so I want to have other options. And there's a lot of people like that. You yeah. know, taking take consideration, the guy, I grew up in Southern California. One of the things people like to do is take their ATVs and motorcycles out to the desert. Mm-hmm. Guess what? They had several cans of fuel in the trailer with them. Yeah. You're not carrying batteries with you. That customer is unlikely to aspire to have an EV for that yeah. trip. Um, a neighbor of mine just bought a 44, 44 foot fifth wheel motorhome and a 22 foot diesel truck to pull it. Wow. You can't pull a 
44-foot fifth wheel with an electric vehicle right now yeah. and go to Yellowstone. Yeah. So I think there's this, there's got to be variability. There's got to be flexibility in these programs to accommodate what people need. You know, I think, I think the thing to, about it too is that I think we have lived through this um, before and what jogs my memory you know, what I'm mentioning to my, to, you know, my blog readers this morning in the, in the newsletter is, um, you know, is, is MTBE, yeah. you know, and just what a, you know, it, you know, the states, you know, banning and the federal government, you know, sort of, a, you know, Congress attempting and then discussing, and it just was, um, you know, it was really messy. And, and, and difficult. And there were a lot of issues um, around that, you know, that basically added up to, was that really the, the best um, solution at the end of the day? And then the, the other experience is, you know, dieselization in the EU, which ironically was created by the same policymakers that are now trying to ban. And the then they thought, wait Western a second, it's like, there's stuff know, coming out of the tailpipe? What's that? Exactly, no. exactly. Yeah, diddly I know. Diddly do, diddly do, diddly do. You know, it's um, interesting, right, because so. I was just, we're getting ready to release a paper uh, looking at the carbon intensity of biofuels. And as I was writing, reading up some of our write-ups on that, MTBE was raised. And I started reflecting after I, you know, my PTSD kicked in. After I pulled <laughs> myself out of the fetal position in the corner, I came back. All right, so what did I really yes. learn during that whole process? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and here's you mentioned we've seen the movie before. Okay. Yeah. MTBE was brought in. It worked great. It was a fantastic mm-hmm. fuel additive. It wasn't supposed yeah. to be released in the environment. Right. Hello. You're not supposed to release any petroleum in the environment. So, right, right. But the big thing there was it was declared a defective product. Right. Which meant anybody who had anything to do with it was jointly and severally liable so that the trial attorneys can get to the deep pockets. Yeah. Um, asbestos, tobacco, same thing, right? Yeah. Then you fast forward to biofuels. The environmental community was all for biofuels, supporting the RFS, get out of MTBE, bring biofuels, renewable fuels, all that stuff. And then they turned once the momentum started, go, well, but we don't like row crop agriculture. That's bad. So yeah. we don't want that as the yeah. feed source find something else. And they started turning on biofuels. What's going to happen when we have 40% of vehicles on the road electric driving around with batteries with, let's be honest, some chemical properties that aren't the best for the environment. It took a lot of energy and a lot of controversy to extract from the earth. What's going to happen when somebody sues those manufacturers Mm -hmm. and those Mm -hmm. chemicals and Mm -hmm. those become defective products? Right. We've just seen that, you know, I've seen the movie play out so many times. And I don't think that these all or nothing proposals are contemplating that. Yeah. And I was thinking about, you know, E15. Um, 3,000 stations selling it. I think it's a great product. I don't think mm-hmm. there's any compatibility issues. Why are some in the petroleum industry so worried? And I, I triggered, go, what if it's declared a defective product at some point? Right. That's exactly. what they're worried about. Yeah. And it goes back, you know, tort reform. Mm-hmm. How are we going to change the litigation process in the United States to allow these new technologies that are actually great for yeah. the transportation market, great for the environment, let them thrive without yeah. this fear of gotcha coming down the road. And yeah. we're so far away from having that, that discussion because nobody wants to have it. Yeah. Um, but I think there's, there's legitimacy there that we've got to really look at how our legal system is structured to provide comfort that we can embrace new options and run with them without the fear of it. 20 years from now, somebody finds something wrong with what we did. 
yeah. and they sue us for 20 years of transgressions. Yeah, I, that's a, the, the same thing that I think about too. And just, I, I believe that those MTBE lawsuits that started in the 90s, those product mm-hmm. liability lawsuits, I think there are at least a few that are ongoing or, or, or were only recently ended Right. You know, just in the last few years, it's like, who wants to, you know, who wants to be involved in, you know, in that? Well, the council um, I used to work with during those negotiations talked about it was the class action lawyers college plan for their children. Let's get the lawsuit that never goes away. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So you mentioned bio biofuels. Uh, you mentioned E15 and ethanol in general. So, you know, given what we're seeing, you know, with with electric vehicles, um, you know, sales increasing, charging infrastructure spreading. What do you see as the role for for biofuels um, in the U.S. Renewable diesel, E15, sustainable aviation fuel. I mean, there's some there's some great technologies out there. Right, we great potential. Tap, we need to tap into it more heavily. We need yeah. to figure out a way to bring. Now, look, there are limitations, there are hurdles, there are challenges to bringing it to market in broader volumes. And we all, we, you know, are both very familiar with those what those are. We can overcome them. There's a way yeah. to overcome them. Um, we have 270 million plus combustion engine vehicles in the United States today. Even if we were to get to 50% of vehicles sold in 2030 would be electric, that means eight and a half million vehicles sold in 2030 will be combustion engine. We have to reduce carbon from those vehicles. If we're really concerned about carbon emissions and climate, you can't just sit back and wait for the white night of, quote, zero emission tailpipe vehicles. I'm throwing a little uh, carrot out there to one of our friends. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's a tailpipe zero emission. Um, You can't wait for that white knight to come and save the world. We have to address this. And you have a potential. There's a, there's a, in our study that we're releasing in June, there's a recognition of a consortium of ethanol plants looking at a uh, sequence carbon capture sequestration program for several different plants that could reduce the carbon intensity of ethanol to 25 compared to 100 for gasoline. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. But if we're only blending at 10%, the, the net impact is fairly limited. Mm-hmm. And so we need to think about how we change that. We need to think about how we get more feedstocks because with sustainable aviation fuels, you mentioned that's going to be pulling the same feedstock that feeds biodiesel and renewable yes. diesel. Yes. EPA has the ability to open up feedstock approved pathways. We need to expedite that. We need to figure out a way to allow new feedstocks, new crops, new energy resources to be fed into the approval process to get qualified renewable fuels and get them to market. We need to look at compatibility issues. We need to look at vehicle compatibility issues and how do we evolve that? And so easy, you know, when I was the lobbyist, it was very easy to use these examples as counterweights to policies we didn't like. Yeah. But the reality is they're real, they're challenges, Let's not use them to fight. Let's use them to figure out, okay, how do we overcome them? Yeah. Just because there's a wall in front of you doesn't mean you can't go around over or under it. Right. At the last point, you run through it. Um, but we need to be much more assertive on that because 270 million vehicles on the road are emitting carbon every single day. Right. And we, we're not doing anything to address that if we don't pay attention to the fuel. So here's my question uh, to you. I 100% agree. Um, and... You know, I kind of feel like the industry, all the the associated industries want to work on this. 
refining industry, you know, they may not agree on what all these solutions should be. Right. Um, and it is a, a fight for market share at the, at the end of the day, but you know, I think the industries want to work on this. Car companies want to work on it. Refiners want to work on it. Fuel retailers want to work on it. Um, you know, others in the industry, biofuel producers, you know, so on and so forth. Truckers, you know, everybody wants to work on this issue. It seems like, except the policymakers. It's like, you know, your panel, the panel that you had at the recent um, Fuels Institute conference, it was so good. It was a the panel on you know, the, the vehicle decarbonization. And it's like, you know, I kind of thought, you know, we talked about this later. I was like, well, you know, the, the panelists had great comments, you know, but I don't think anyone in the audience would really seriously disagree, you know, and you had attendees from the full range of the full spectrum. You had every, everyone from the charging companies there to, you know, to uh, refiners uh, of all sizes and, you know, the national labs. And, you know, so everyone's sitting there and every, I think everyone's really agreeing, but it's like, the, who's the people who aren't there? you know, are the policymakers, both at the state level, and especially, you know, at the federal level. And that's what's like, you know, where are these people at? You know, Congress doesn't seem to be terribly active or interesting. I think DOE is kind of trying, but it's, um, I don't know, what's your thought about this? It's challenging because, and I'll take my snarkiness out of it because I can get real (laughs) snarky about politicians. Um, But, you know, I work on Capitol Hill. And it's real challenging, especially in today's polarized political system, to deliver a message that has any complexity to it. And so they, they, resent, they, they resort to soundbite statements, which result in soundbite type policies. We need to decarbonize. We need electric vehicles. That's real easy. Every politician in the world can remember those, those words. When you start talking about but we also need to reduce the carbon intensity of liquid fuels for the 270 million vehicles on the road. And we need to think about the medium heavy duty sector. That's a whole new animal. Yeah. And we got regions where the electricity grid is not as clean as we need it to be to justify electric vehicles. So we can only deploy electric vehicles where it makes that, one, you lose your audience. And two, the politician starts talking in tongues because they have no idea what they're talking about, right? Um, and so we get backed into this policy by simplicity. And my hope is that the people in the back room working on the legislation or the regulations respect the complexity. And I know in many circumstances, I know OTAC at EPA, I know the DOE guys, they get it. The career people, they really do understand it. Um, And they they recognize that, but they're given a tough hand. You need right. to achieve this objective by here because I said that on this on my stump speech. We have to achieve that, and it may not be an achievable objective. Right, and that just it's really challenging. I mean, I I really got out of politics because I was so tired of sitting down with members of Congress going, "Hey, pitching them what we what's going on in the market." I go, you know what, John, you're right. I agree with you. I can't vote for it. Vote with you because I'll get hammered in the political world. Like, then go home. Right. Quit, quit representing your people because you're not representing them, you're representing right. your selfish interests. And so I kind of got disheartened by it. And I think mm-hmm. since I let this gotten worse and yeah. that's unfortunate, but we need, we need complex solutions because it's a complex market. Yeah. And if you're going to negotiate the policy in the media and on social media, 
we've already lost. Yeah. And that's the problem. I think, you know, um, we did have a diverse group at the, at the fuels Institute meeting. I talked to a couple of the people who said, you know, I seem to pick up a sense of bitterness in some of the conversation. I said, well, let's put it in perspective for 125 years, the liquid fuels market was the only thing that existed. Right. In the last 10 years, they've been put in the back seat, the back row of the classroom and they raise their hands and the teacher ignores them. Right. Yeah. They're bitter because mm-hmm. they have a huge role to play. And I don't think we can really make progress um, until we start looking at the life cycle carbon intensity, mm-hmm. because the refiners, you know, some people think, well, they produce hydrocarbon. They have no role to play in this. Yeah, they do. If you look at the life cycle from the time they produce the oil through the transport to the refining, to the, all of those points have opportunities to reduce carbon emissions and they're exploring them. They're not thinking about the whole complex, the whole system and where we can make impact. They're only thinking about that last stage. Right. Because that's what consumers see, that's what consumers understand. But if we can reduce carbon from the petroleum product supply stream, why shouldn't we? Yeah. Um, right. But getting people to think that way is a little challenging. Yeah. And I think developing the the incentives to, you know, to to help make that happen on a on a nationwide um, basis. But yeah, I, I agree with you in terms of the you know, the, the, the bitterness, but I, I do think like that is the biggest challenge. It's, it's, it's actually maybe not even the technology, you know, or the market issues. It is, <laughs> you know, dealing with the, the folks on the Hill because you're right. I mean, EPA and DOE, they're constrained by, by law, you yep. know, they're, they're, they are to implement, uh, they implement executive orders. Sure. But, you know, in terms of congressional action, they implement what Congress tells them to implement. They don't have uh, a terribly lot of, of wiggle room. And so that that makes it very challenging, you know, for career people, I would imagine, who really are experts, um, you know, to who maybe see what needs to be done, but can't take the, the action. I just feel like we're sort of in this gridlock. Other countries are moving forward, you know, with national decarbonization plans and visions, um, win, lose, or draw, whether we we approve of them or not. But we kind of really you know, it's, I feel like it's going to be a state by state fight and it's going to be real piecemeal. And I'm not sure if that benefits anyone. And I don't know what the makeup of your audience is. So I'm going to go ahead and say something here that might tick off. Some people. <laughs> a lot of different um, people. But let's take an example. Okay. About how politicians try to capitalize on things. So uh, Governor Newsom in California announced their, their plan to get rid of internal combustion engines. He did it under the backdrop of wildfires. And said, these wildfires are a product of climate change. Climate change is precipitated because we're burning hydrocarbons. Therefore, I'm going to ban combustion engine vehicle sales to prevent wildfires. Now, I heard that and go, wow, that's a long walk for a short drink of water. Um, Uh You have to really want to see that. And there's so much in between where he started and where he finished that it's hard to draw a straight line. There's no causal, there's no, you can't draw a straight line causal effect. And so if we're going to continue down paths like that, where we're going to try to politically capitalize on tragedy in order to push our agenda, that's not, that's not helping. It's really not benefiting us. It's not, it's not facilitating an honest dialogue about what makes sense for the environment and people. And it's putting that agenda first and we've got to get out of this. And even those other countries that have decarbonization, they have an agenda. 
And I don't know that they're really thinking it all the way through. And I'm concerned that they may not be. Yeah. And you do things like the EU banning combustion engine sales by 2035. Like, did you think about boom, 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 all these different issues? We have a paper we published last uh, spring mm-hmm. about what do you need to be thinking about if you're going to re- ban combustion engine sales? It's a six-page paper, very small font, and it's a very high level. We didn't get in the weeds. We could have written probably 100 pages. Yeah. Got to think about this. Um, but that's difficult for politicians to get their arms around. Yeah. But if they don't, the policies are going to fail. Well, we'll have to stay tuned and see what happens, you know, on the on the EU side and also what, what happens in, in California. So last question, fun question, maybe fun for me, maybe not for you. So what excites you the most about this space and why? I mean, you are a lobbyist. You decided to go off and start this institute. It's going into its... 10th year or getting pretty close, um, you know, what's exciting about it? What keeps you going? I think, you know, we've changed from affordable fuel, that type of stuff to how do we reduce carbon? Um, and I tell everybody, I don't care if you think climate change is real or not. It doesn't matter. The path is we're going to reduce carbon. There's too many pressures to say we can, we can avoid that. What I find most exciting is there's so much opportunity to be innovative and really push the envelope into new technologies and new strategies and really find new solutions. But at the same time, that's my biggest concern. It seems that the politicians are driving the agenda in one direction and it's leaving all these opportunities behind. And what I love about what the Fuels Institute does is we provide a venue and a forum to have conversations about these options. And we don't buy into a, any solution. We want to explore all these options. I mean, for example, I'm very, I'm still very interested in e-fuels, which is a mm-hmm. gasoline produced from yeah. electrolysis using renewable energy. Um, my good friends in the national labs say, well, yeah, the final product's great, but it's like only 80, it's 84% inefficient, John. Well, well yeah, and it's really expensive. Yeah, I get that. But today- you know a lot of things have been really expensive in the past. Exactly, exactly. And if you can have a zero carbon liquid fuel that's drop-in ready, should we not want it? Yeah. And should we not invest to figure out how to make it economically viable and scalable? Maybe it's not, maybe it is. Maybe it's only for aviation. Maybe it's only for different applications. But there's so, there are a lot of bright people. The panel you mentioned at the Mm -hmm. conference I mean, I sometimes think I know some stuff. Man, I felt like a moron sitting up there with those guys. Those guys are <laughs> brilliant. Um, I don't know how many PhDs are represented up there. I guarantee you I don't have one. So I was very undergunned. Um, but the fact that we have people like that, people like yourself and the people mm-hmm. you work with, pushing them, trying to figure this out is inspiring. Yeah. I want the politicians to see that. I want them to see that you've got some brilliant people trying to find sustainable solutions and sustainable, not environmentally sustainable. That's one part of it, but right. enduring, lasting, things that can take us the next 50 years. They're putting their heart and soul in to try to figure this out. Give them an opportunity. Yeah. But they keep closing the doors to innovation. And I think that's the worst thing government can do. And um, so I'm, I'm really excited about all those opportunities. And at the same time, I'm trying to figure out how can I run a truck 
through these walls keep getting built up so these smart people can bring us their solutions. Yeah. I'm not going to come up with solutions, but if I can knock down these walls to give them the opportunity to do so, that's what's really exciting to me. Yeah. And create space. I, I think creating the space and the platform for people to engage across these different, you know, um, use cases across the sector, so on and so forth, I think is just, you know, so incredibly important. And there aren't a lot of outlets where you can do that um, these days. So I, I definitely agree. And so something I really appreciate being, uh, being, being involved and, and also being, um, board of advisors is, is I think people need objective, uh, research. Um, people need clear eyed solutions. They need, actually, they need clear eyed problem identification. (laughs) I don't even know if you even have that, um, sometimes. And then just like creating the the platform to engage and dialogue and stuff like that. So they need need a safe place where they can be honest. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, that's the thing. (laughs) Our fuels conferences, I, I, the last two we've had, have opened my eyes that when people feel safe, they don't feel they're going to be judged or attacked. They're so much more constructive and open about what we're trying to do and what the challenges are we are experiencing and why we need to work together to overcome them. It's fantastic. And if we could get the politicians to just watch that for a half hour, Mm -hmm. put a massive spotlight of shame on their inability to do so. (laughs) I have those discussions. Yeah. You know, yeah. When I was on the Hill, you could still go out and have dinner or grab a drink with somebody. Yeah. Else. You do that now, that's campaign fodder, your next primary attack. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's atrocious. So yeah. we need to have those open, honest, safe dialogues if we're going to make progress. Yeah, agreed. John, thank you so much for being on the program. It was great. Sorry to hit you with the Spice Girl reference. I don't even know where that came from, but thanks so much for being on the program. I'm going to go back into my fetal position in the corner and try to forget you brought up Spice Girls. So we're good. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, All right, great. Thank you. You've been listening to Fueling the Future of Transport. This show is hosted and edited by Tammy Klein, produced by Carolyn Schneer, and engineered by Alexander Nikolic. To hear more great episodes of this show, learn more, and sign up for a free bi-weekly newsletter, visit transportenergystrategies.com.